So our topic today is what is the best way to worship, highlighting the, that aspect of personal and impersonal God. Like many others, when I was growing up, I headed off into nature to try to expand my awareness, to feel some peace, this kind of thing. And whatever chance I had, that's where I headed off. And it was very fulfilling in a lot of ways. But I was conscious that for whatever reason at the time, I could only go so far with that experience. I could only go so deep with that experience. And when I consciously, deliberately came onto the path, the masters say that we're all on the path, whether we know it or not. But at some point, we take a more deliberate step. And when I did that, and when I came to Ananda, when I found these teachings as my own and started to meditate, I had the inner experience of those, of that, those aspects of what I would come to understand as God, as the infinite, in meditation that I sought in nature, but of a much deeper order. And so I felt peace expanding, and I felt love, and I felt joy, and I felt a relative wisdom. And it was a very natural extension from that for me to be immediately and totally comfortable with the concept of God within form. I wasn't brought up in any of that. I was, I was brought up in a supportive and accepting environment, but nothing of religion or spirituality. And yet, from that inner experience, I felt completely at home, immediately so, with the concept of form and what that represented. And because of that, then able to realize that experience also more deeply in nature as well, in all of creation. Well, there is a very wonderful uh, exchange in the Bhagavad Gita between Krishna and Arjuna. And this is the dialogue between God and the disciple. And Arjuna is asking Krishna many, many things. And at this particular point, Arjuna, representing all of us, he, he acknowledges as best as he can perceive it, the greatness of Krishna. But he says, I want to see you as you really are. I want to see your Vishwarupa. Isn't that an incredible word? <laughs> Even if you don't know what it means, Vishwarupa. It's this <laughs> fantastic word. And, uh, and it's a fantastic expression of the divine, of the vision of God. But it's not at all fantasy. It's not something we can just, you know... Uh, say, oh, that's just more, you know, Hindu mythology or whatever, or someone's, you know, fantastic imagination. It's, it's the vision of God. And this is what Arjuna is asking to see. I want to know everything. I want to know all that you are. And so Krishna says to him, no one has ever seen this, Arjuna. But because of your dedication, because of your devotion, I will give you this experience. And he says, you... Krishna says, you cannot see this with mortal eyes. Therefore, I will give you sight divine. In other words, with, our, with mortal eyes, we see the form merely. 
but that more subtler aspect of God, that's eternal, that's from within, that's looking at the world, looking at the form through the spiritual eye. And through that, we can behold that expanded vision. And so Krishna says to Arjuna, I will give you sight divine. And then at that moment, Krishna takes on this Vishwa Rupa, this vision of God, and it's everything. It's all of creation. It's all of the forms. It's all of the shades of light, dark and light and the opposites and duality. It's everything. It's huge. It's overwhelming. It's glorious. And Arjuna is totally taken with this. And then it's like information overload. He just, you know, he can't do any more. And he realizes that what he has seen of Krishna is just this little part. And and then he feels bad and he's, Krishna, Krishna, I'm so sorry. I've seen you as my friend. I've seen you as Lord, but I haven't acknowledged you for who you really are. Forgive me, forgive me. And he gets down on his knees and asks for forgiveness and bows at Krishna. And, And then he says, Please, please reassume the form by which I know you. This is too much. This is more than I can handle. Thank you for showing it to me, but I just, I want God in this little package of Krishna and let me work with that. So Krishna again uh, assumes that form and as, as Arjuna knows Krishna. And he You know, in this exchange, what we have is God as the personal and the impersonal. And we have both of those as reality and truth and the understanding um, that we need to worship God in form, to expand beyond that form and see God in everything and all creation. So when we look to our masters, when we look to Yogananda, Yogananda, we are so blessed. If you haven't read the autobiography, read it. Because, and if you've read it, reread it. Because he talks about God, not just in one way, in infinite ways through his infinite experience of that reality and truth. And so he talks about the formless God. He talks about the formless Christ. And he uh, St. Therese of Avila, St. Augustine, he said, they spoke of the formless Christ. And Yogananda had that experience of Christ in form and without form. When he was a young boy, he had the experience of God as light, as Ishwara, this brilliant light. At first it was all saints, the saints, the Himalayan yogis, and then it all dissolved into light and God spoke to him and answered his question and said, I am Ishwara, I am God. And so he had this experience of the impersonal, of the personal. As a young boy, as Makunda, he used to, in the fashion that his mother taught him, make images of the mother Kali. Their family worshipped Kali, that aspect of God as the divine mother in the form of Kali. And so after his mother passed, he took on making those images and they'd, he'd mold them out of clay with his sister and they would gather jute and make it and put it in for the hair, this long string and black string. And they would make these elaborate statues and dress them. And then as they do in India at the end of festival, at the end of celebration and the worship of the deity of that, of that aspect of God, particular aspect, 
They just they cart it down to the Ganges and toss it in. And it all goes, the idea is it all comes from God. It all is God. It all now goes back to God. And so he, he, he uh, worshipped God as Kali. He worshipped God as Krishna. It was Krishna who came to him uh, just prior to his uh, experience, not even vision, but Sri Yukteswar materialized to Yogananda in the body, resurrected after his physical passing. But it was Krishna, the vision of Krishna that preceded that. When Yogananda was a um, a young man also, he went to the great Saint Master Mahashai and he pleaded with Master Mahashai to give him an experience to see Divine Mother. And Divine Mother was whom, as I said, Yogananda worshipped. And he, his love was so deep. It was so, so profound that he, at that moment in time and many years, many times later over the course of his life, but he was at a point where he couldn't stand to live if Divine Mother didn't manifest herself to him. I mean, that was the intensity of his heart expressing through his prayer and he begged Master Mahashai to intercede on his behalf. And Master Mahashai told him, go home and meditate and she'll come to you tonight. And Divine Mother did come to him. And she said the words, always have I loved you, ever shall I love you. And he, he had to know that. He had to hear that. He had to see and experience the Divine Mother. It wasn't enough to just faith. Faith wasn't enough at that point. The thought that God loves us all, God created us all, God is guiding us all home at this very moment wasn't enough. He had to hear those words. He had to see that manifestation. When he was also a young man, he prayed to Shiva. I mean, everything, you know, just God in whatever form. In India, the beauty of it, people say, why so many forms? This is all crazy. This is all blasphemous. But each one of us here is different. And of God, there's this many and an unlimited amount of other manifestations because we're so unique. We're so particular in our nature. And what resonates with one doesn't resonate with the other. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful um, teaching path. That's not enough. It's a beautiful aspect of creation that God comes to us in infinite forms to, in a, to, so that we can resonate with that particular aspect that it is our own and that inspires us to seek that within our own selves, in our own hearts. That's where we experience it and that happens to be our particular experience. And so Yogananda as a young boy prayed also to Shiva. There's a marvelous story that Uh, Swamiji recounts in conversations with Yogananda and Yogananda, you know, he would play with the neighborhood children and there was this particular group of boys and they wanted to play with Yogananda, but he didn't want to hang out with them because they, their language was sort of coarse and vulgar and he just didn't want that vibration. So he wouldn't, you know, spend time with them, but they wanted to win him over and they we're going to win him over by force if they needed to, to be part of their little band. And so Yogananda was headed out to the park one day with, with friends who he liked being with. 
And uh, there was a, a boy walking across the park, Joe Tin, and he was brandishing a stick. And these other neighborhoods, bullies, if you will, had talked him into confronting Yogananda. And so Yogananda's friends said, don't go, don't go there, because he'll beat you up. And Yogananda said, no, he won't. I'm going to meet with him, but first I'm going to go meditate. And he went back to his meditation room and he prayed specifically to Shiva. Shiva is that aspect of God as the destroyer of delusion. And sometimes we need to call on that. You know, we recognize delusion in ourselves and in how we're acting, how we're behaving, how we're thinking. And we need to, we need to do some serious battle with that energy. And Yogananda called on that aspect, that principle of the divine that destroys Maya. After all, he created it, right? God created everything and God created delusion and God can destroy delusion if we decide we finally want to exit delusion. So Yogananda prayed to Shiva and said, please help Jotin to feel blessing and your grace. And so he went back and he entered the park and Jotin comes walking at him again with this stick and Yogananda looks him right in the eye and just stares at him and Jotin's gaze is fixed on Yogananda and then he drops his stick and Yogananda says he got this kind of sheepish smile over his face and then he just sort of walked away. Well, some weeks went by And the whole thing wasn't quite still resolved. And Yogananda prayed again to Shiva and said, Shiva, help me, through me, change Jyotin. Change him. And so again, Yogananda one day was headed out toward the park. And he saw Jyotin coming. And again, Yogananda's friends abandoned him. They were afraid of trouble. And Yogananda walked up toward him. And as he was approaching, Jotin came to him and fell at his feet. And he said, what have you done to me? And he said, I want to be your disciple. And Yogananda taught him how to meditate and helped him. And again, time went by. And Jotin one day again approached Yogananda and said, can you help me with something? At work, I tend to get angry. And I'm always getting angry at my boss. And when I get angry at my boss, I hit him. (laughs) I always hit them. And so I always lose my jobs. (laughs) And so Yogananda said, well, I've taught you how to meditate. And so when you feel that anger, then feel that peace and that divine experience that you have in meditation dissolving that anger. And so Jotin practiced this. And he came to Yogananda and he said, after some time, and he said, I've overcome anger. And Yogananda thought to himself, okay, well, we'll see. And he, he sent out some of the other boys and he said, whatever it, you've done that ever makes Jotin angry, go do it now. <laughs> <laughs> go try to make him angry. And they did. And, but Jotin didn't get angry. He had conquered anger. And uh, so, you know, having the form 
In this case, it was Yogananda praying to Shiva, but it's a principle, really, that we're trying to tune into. We're trying to, in this case, destroy delusion or whatever it is. I mean, have peace, be more open, surrender more to the divine will instead of our own will, whatever it is. But we're trying to get that to a focus. We're trying to get all of our attention, our aura, if you will, wrapped around that. And that's what empowers prayer. It's not just a grouping of words. It's not even one of Yogananda's lovely whispers from eternity. It's the power of our attunement with that prayer request, feeling that in our heart, having that full focus, and praying to God and knowing that a response will be given, a response will come. There's many things that would be really helpful to us in praying uh, with form, because you know when we pray to the masters, when we pray to our guru, to always see the form in light, and this is what Yogananda, how Yogananda guides us in this, is that when we did that chant like Om before all the names of our masters, Om Krishna, Om Yukteswar, this kind of thing, we remember that consciousness from which they've come. That yes, there's a form, yes, there's a guru, yes, there's a, an enlightened being, yes, there's beautiful a beautiful sunset, but all of these things are born of the light of God, born of the love of God. And so when we uh, put the form against that backdrop of infinite light, if you will, because you see, in the world that we live in, when it, it's true, isn't it? Whenever there's something good or someone great, human nature always wants to drop it down a notch or two. Yeah, they're really great, but, you know, they're really great, but they think this and not that, or they look like this, or they, you know, don't look like that, or yes, they seem like they're a high soul, but they wear glasses, or (laughs) they're overweight, or, you know, whatever it is. The mind just, you know, it's why Krishna said it's easier when we are in form to in these bodies to relate to form and yet the pitfall would be that we take the form and impose on that the the thoughts the tendencies of human nature you know that we we perceive ourselves as flawed therefore this individual however great they may be perhaps isn't quite perfect and so if we hold that form in the light then we remember what that form is born of. Yogananda, people, people saw, some people saw him as full of flaws. I mean, you know, all, all of our line, any great saint, any great master, everyone doesn't think they're saints. Everyone doesn't think they're masters. Everyone doesn't think they're enlightened beings. They think they're flawed or worse, you know. So if we can hold that to the light and remember from wit, from whence that incarnation comes that embodiment comes it's extremely helpful and it's directional it helps us too because it takes us after all the masters are here as guides to lead us toward that infinite reality that expression beyond form and they can only help us to do that as we look to the light and look for that light within them it gives us form gives us a way to also channel our devotion. And that's why it's very helpful. 
you know, channeling the energy of the heart. Yogananda talked about chanting as half the battle and how he, in his chants, spiritualized them. But sometimes we stop there. He wasn't just talking about spiritualizing chants. He was talking about spiritualizing everything. In other words, through everything, through all forms and through no form, to spiritualize it, which means to have the experience of God through that. Yogananda tells a story of a a student who came to him once, and this student was making fun of his grandmother and said, you know, she was Indian, didn't speak English. At a certain time of the day on the radio, there would be bhajans would be played on some stations she was listening to. And he thought, that is so silly. And he told Yogananda as much. You know, she listens to these bhajans and afterwards she takes flowers and sets them on the radio. It's ridiculous. She's crazy. And Yogananda said, in fact, it's a very, it's a very aware and expansive thing that she's doing because she's honoring the source of inspiration. I mean, that's what form is about. We see that form as an embodiment of all that is. And we honor that. We appreciate that, that through the form comes inspiration, that through the form is imparted transcendence or enlightenment or higher states of consciousness. And to honor that, to give honor to that, at thy feet, oh, I do bow. You know, someone can look at a, at a rose bush outside and see a beautiful rose. And maybe if they know something about roses and what roses smell like certain different things, they might say, wow, that smells like a double delight. That really is an incredible rose. And someone else might look at it and say, wow, they really they need to prune that rose. <laughs> that rose really needs some fertilizer. It's not looking too good. But to the disciple, the disciple sees the embodiment, be it in the rose or the master or the sunset, whatever it is. And it's an inner experience and it's a bliss experience. You see the rose and it's thrilling because your experience of it is that God created this. And your experience of it is God. And you feel that divine presence and you're uplifted by it and that's a whole different way of being is to look upon this world look upon one another and to try to see the light around that individual around and in around that object in creation and have an inner divine experience that's what krishna meant he said be thou a yogi to arjuna And yoga means union. So in life, in activity, be thou a yogi. Be united with that highest consciousness in whatever you see, through whatever you do, through whatever you experience, to take the essence of it in form, beyond form, and feel it as the divine and feel it as blessing, and feel it as grace.